Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The Economist. In London, this is The Economist, and you're listening to Babbage, a weekly conversation on science and technology. I'm Kenneth Couquier, the data editor, and I'm speaking today with our science correspondent, Jason Palmer, and our environment correspondent, Miranda Johnson. In this episode, we'll discuss why stock traders will soon need atomic clocks, and also some new developments in biofuels. Jason, let's start with you. You're working on a story about how banks and traders are going to be upgrading their timepieces. What's happening? Well, it's it's about time. It's about time you asked me that. <laughs> oh, um, you were waiting for that. Yeah, it really was. Uh, gotcha. It's about timing and and traceability, really. As you know, as we know, things happen increasingly quickly out there in trading and banking land, and algorithmic trading and flash crashes and the like, which we saw the likes of last year. But there's also an issue around accountability, right? If these things are happening quicker, even voice trading, what have you, there's an issue of being able to sort of line up the books when you want to go back and do your auditing and your forensics and the like. The current European standard has it that you have to record timestamp things. Uh, recordable events every one second. In the U.S., that same rule is at 50 milliseconds. So pretty neat. So how do they keep track of that time? You might argue that they don't sufficiently keep track of the time. There's a number of ways to do this. You can't just do this with your, you know, the Windows clock and what what have you. Uh, Lots of firms use a GPS, right? Some even buy a cheap atomic clock. If If you'll believe it, there is such a thing as a cheap atomic clock. The issue here is timing relative to what, right? So there's these atomic clocks, the cheap ones anyway have this drift and it can kind of get a second is a little bit longer here, a little bit shorter there. You have changing latency, the time, you know, for you to send a signal over there and for it to come back, that can change and so on. Um, And moreover, if you use things like GPS, that can be jammed for, you know, for 20 bucks, you can buy a box that for a whole city block will just wipe out GPS signal altogether. So the the truth is whether you can actually effectively get your accounting right to the second or the 50 milliseconds, I'm not sure you can. So there's new rules coming into play that want the financial community to upgrade their infrastructure so they can tell better time. That's right. In in Europe anyway, earlier in the month, we saw the publication of what's called MIFID II. Don't ask me what the acronym stands for, but basically big 500-page document updating the standards for, for stock trading and banking more generally. And if you look in the appendix and you look deep enough, you can see there's a, there's a new ruling on the timing, which is now to be down to one millisecond, unless you're in high-frequency trading, in which case it's 100 microseconds, 100 millionths of a second. Seriously? Yeah. That's really quick. Can you um, tell me, I believe that a blink is 200 milliseconds. Is that right, or am I off? Uh, it depends on how fast you blink. How, okay. how coffeeed up are you? Well, right now, you can tell I'm totally jacked on caffeine. <laughs> but it's to say, so microseconds are vastly quick. That's incredible. Yeah. Um, and the issue is not just that it's it's that fast, but that it has to be sort of traceable, the, rel- the answering the relative to what question. So in the UK, we have the National Physical Laboratory. That's They, they maintain like the sort of the master clock for the country. They jokingly refer to their people who work on time standards as time lords. Um, they're oh, actually God. going to, to offer a regular enough clock um, as a service. Okay, so the one question I have about this is that it seems to me that we replace one potential inaccuracy, cheap atomic clocks, with another potential inaccuracy, the need to not only have a single source of truth, this one atomic clock, 
but having to calculate the network infrastructure delay with which you'd be recording when it goes through all of the internet-like infrastructure for it to be recorded at the customer's premises. Right. Well, there's ways to get around this. That backup clock actually starts its journey in at the, the sort of the main lab, and they absolutely synchronize them. And then check this out. They plug it into a battery, and they drive it over to wherever it's going, and then check what the latency is. That gives them the baseline. But the latency is always changing. It is, but they can tell because they're querying their grandmaster clocks, these sort of subsidiary things, all the time, so they can see how much that is changing. And it works. Well, almost. The issue that, that actually comes up is whether or not these, these regulations can be carried out, right? So to move down to a millisecond, to a microsecond, the issue is, well, where are you measuring exactly? This is not like going to a till and you say, you know, I want to buy this thing, and they print you out a receipt that has a time on it. There are a lot of different, let's call them decision points along the way. Of course. And you know what else? The actual thing that you're measuring takes longer than the atomic clock calculates. So your your operation, your processing power is always blurring across the timestamp. Well, the clock is far more precise than you need it to be. Right. Uh, the precision that is demanded by the new regulations might be more than is reasonable to expect. So I've spoken to somebody who's you know in, involved in these kinds of networks. You get your order in from here. It goes to perhaps this bit of software here or through this switching thing there. And so on. all of this is going on, again, in, in light pipes and through sure. electronic circuits. And it's still you know well under a second. But when we're dividing them up into millions thousands, of them, right, thousands millions of millions, of them, right, exactly, then, then yeah. these, these kinds of things matter. So a particular kind of trade might go through one route, uh, a different one through a different route. While these things are worked out and while different bits of software crunch through it and so on, might actually be two or three milliseconds. So it sounds like this is something that is being driven by the regulators, that the financial services industry itself doesn't really need to know to that degree of accuracy their own operations. But the regulators See, want to do it. Seemingly not. I, you know, imagine as long as things are internally consistent for them, then you know the individual traders aren't aren't too fussed. Um, but there is, especially in an increasingly fast-moving world, this need for good accountability. And the truth is, it's a, you know, time-wise, as far as the time lords would have it, it's a wild west out there. People are using you know gizmos you can buy down the shop to keep track of these things. It's you know we, we need better than that. How much better than that you can feasibly get, um, and exactly where to make the measurement and how to make sure that it, these regulations have any sense is another question. And and that we won't see any answers to until these regulations come into force. That's really interesting. Thank you, Jason. Now it's time to move on. Miranda, you're working on a piece this week about biofuel. There's the company DuPont, the American chemicals company, and they're opening up a cellulosic biofuel plant in Iowa. Now, this is a very special plant with special technology. But let's start with that technology. Please explain what is cellulosic biofuel? Absolutely. So when you think about first-generation biofuels, and in particular ethanol here, one of the more controversial aspects was that to make this first-generation biofuel, you use sugar-rich plants such as maize and sugarcane that actually uh, could feed humans or livestock. And the advantage with cellulosic biofuels is that you can use essentially waste biomass. Um, in the case of the new DuPont plant, they are um, using enzymes to break down the cellulose and lignin in essentially what is left over um, from maize harvests, kind of stalks and leaves. And sugars are formed after you uh, break down the cellulose and lignin and ferment to create ethanol. And then this is in turn distilled to produce fuel. Okay. So we obviate the debate between I drive my car and poor people are malnourished. 
Uh, yes, to some extent. And it's also about um, land use. I mean, there's been a huge increase um, in the share of farming land, for example, in the US, given over to growing corn um, as a result of renewable fuel standards introducing targets to promote the use of biofuels. And that has also driven corn production in recent years. Okay, so it sounds like it's a great technology. But it also sounds really obvious. It's you know using the the stalks of the plant rather than the fruit of the plant. Why wasn't it used until now? Yeah. So essentially, because uh, of the cellulosic nature of the biomass being used, it's tough. It's fibrous. Uh, which makes it more difficult to break down to obtain those initial sugars for fermentation. So it was technologically trickier to manage that and therefore more expensive. Great. And so can I presume that DuPont is going to be the next big oil producer challenging the Saudis? This is the interesting thing. When DuPont first sort of broke ground on this plant, it was back in 2012 and oil prices were, you know, certainly up above $100 a barrel. I think in March 2012, they got over $124 a barrel. So we were we were living in a different world where perhaps it made better sense to start looking at alternatives for transport fuel. Um, as we all know, things are very, very different now. Um, fuel below $50, oil below $50 in recent weeks. It looks like making biofuels, and in particular cellulosic biofuels, in an economically viable way is going to be difficult. So is is this the last great innovation around biofuels? Have we now sort of crossed a frontier in which we're not using the food that could be used to feed human beings or livestock, but actually the refuse of the food? Or is there more that we need to play for still? Does technology still have a role to play in biofuels? So it's interesting. I mean, there are lots of different types of, of, of newer biofuels being looked into. I mean, algae is very interesting. Um, people have long tried to make you know jet fuel out of that. So there are definitely startups working on some very interesting things. Even if cellulosic biofuels face a tough time in the US, um, investment environment perhaps looks more friendly in countries such as China um, and Brazil that also have vast amounts of waste from harvest biomass waste that could be used for these plants. So no, I very much expect that there are exciting things yet to happen. Jason? You say that there's uh, a number of startups working on this, but it seems to me that there have been a great many startups working on this kind of thing for absolutely ages. And we're still sitting here talking about like a major chemicals company who's who's actually cracked it. I mean, what does the, the sort of, what does the landscape of who's going to move this technology along look like? Are the startups going to have any effect? Yeah, no, it, it's interesting. It's um, because certainly some of the bigger oil firms, um, Shell, for example, have invested in these kind of alternative biofuels and have pulled investments in recent years. I think the question is, does the technology work at scale? And I think that's something that DuPont is very much trying to prove. So with these startups, while the initial sort of kernel of the idea is interesting, actually, if it's ever going to become commercially viable, you need to show that you can Sold produce. Sold your patent to DuPont. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's, I mean, the pharma industry is doing very well by outsourcing the R&D to smaller players who will develop the drug, bring it to a trial stage, yeah. and then they swoop in. But it's great to see that of farm science and material science and all these other sectors of the economy that formerly took huge and 
industrial institutions to bring things to market. You can have research done at a smaller scale and you get the diversity effect of players who are going to enter and many are going to fail, but some will succeed. Absolutely. And um, overall, we need to see vastly more uh, research and development expenditure on energy. I think it's about at half levels it was in the 1970s. So wow. big firms or small firms, more needs to be done. Miranda, thank you very much. Jason, thank you. That's all for this episode. You've been listening to Babbage. For more news on science and technology, go to economist.com. In London, this is The Economist. The Economist. Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. From a local business to a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America gives your operation access to exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America N.A. Copyright 2024.